Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find James chapter 3. James chapter 3. The title of the message this morning is Tongues of Fire, because today we are speaking about our tongues. Not literally, but our speech, our language, controlling our speech and language, You've already heard James use some language about bridling and controlling his, your tongue and his tongue in his letter so far, uh, but this chapter, we're going to do the whole chapter three today, and that's all it's about. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into this text with you because this week it's been, it's been helpful and convicting and challenging for me to think about what it is that James is trying to tell us about our speech and our language. Words are important. I read in one commentary, uh, the way that they started their commentary on this chapter was, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie. (laughs) Um, They're like, this may be a fun nursery rhyme for children, but any person who's grown up knows this is not true at all that perhaps the, the greatest wounds that you have experienced have been because of someone's words, not necessarily by someone's uh, physical attack. Our speech, our thoughts, what we hear, what we see, so the words we say and the words we hear, what we take in and learn affects how we communicate, and how we communicate comes with incredible power. And we know this, right? We know this intuitively, uh, we don't have to be taught this. We, we, we learn it through life. So I'm going to put two texts on the screen, both from Proverbs 27. People can bless us with words, right? So look at Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Right? So the, Solomon is telling us in Proverbs 27, Uh, You want to be blessed? Do you want to have a a treasure to enjoy in your life? Find you a friend who gives you good counsel, who speaks good words to you. So better than oil and perfume, making the heart glad is this gift of good words. Sometimes, though, friends can cut like a surgeon, right? So their, their good words sometimes encourage us and bless us in a positive way, and sometimes they bring us what we need like medicine. So look at Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes we have uh, a need to hear something that we may not want to hear, but we need to hear. Again, I use the, the, the illustration of medicine. Really, nobody really loves to take medicine but we know it's good for us. We know that we need it. And in the same way, a hard word, not a harsh word, but a hard word from a trusted friend is often exactly what we need. Other times, though, our speech can be devastating, evil, and wild. People cannot just wound, but harm with their speech. And I know that we live in a culture and we live in a day where that word means a lot of things to a lot of people, the idea of harm. And there are some things for which we can say or not say that somebody might say, that's harmful to me, 
And that's not what that means. It's not what that means when you say something that somebody doesn't agree with that you're harming them. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is something like this. Uh, In Mexico a few years ago, through falsehood and confusion, people who started rumors or told lies or passed on false information brought about real, massive consequences. So in uh, this town in Mexico, these two men were arrested. uh, Find their names. Alberto and Ricardo Flores, 21 and 43-year-old farmers who had lived for decades in this small community. They were minor offenders who had been arrested by the police, and a person started a rumor on WhatsApp that day that there had been a string of child abductions and that these two men were the suspects who had abducted the children of their town. And by the time these officers found out, again and again, they were trying to get the word out, this is not who these people are, this is not why we've arrested them, they are minor offenders for some small thing, they have nothing to do with the child abductions, and yet the rumors spread. A crowd formed. Police said there was no evidence that the men had actually committed any crime. They had been taken into the station for disturbing the peace after they were accosted by local residents. So then it came out that they didn't even commit a crime. And so they were brought in for questioning, but they were going to be released. But the mob outside the station was in the grip of a different version of events. This is according to the BBC. And so from WhatsApp and social media, child kidnappers have entered the country was the message that pinged on all these people's phones. Long story short, this crowd was riled up. Someone bought gasoline. And when the Floreses were dragged out of the police station, they were beaten, one probably to death, doused with gasoline and set on fire. Because this crowd was convinced based on something totally untrue that what they were doing was the right thing because of a text message on WhatsApp. Now, I start this morning to say, I doubt that the things that you say and do have that kind of real-world life-altering effects right this moment. But don't think that the gap between what happened a few years ago in a town in Mexico and the way that some of us use our speech don't think that that gap is very far because it's not. As we'll see in this text, it comes from the same place. James 3 is all about the tongue, which is a way of saying our words. So like weeks before, we're gonna hear some familiar notes in his words to us. Like weeks before, we'll feel the sting of confrontation when we think about our own lives and how we kind of measure up to this this picture that James gives us. And I pray in light of that, we will see that in spite of our great need, Jesus still and always is the answer. So let's read James 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. 
If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and uh, driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh, Lord God, we pray that as we come to a harrowing text, a text that confronts us with how we live, how we think, and how we speak I pray that we would see your word for what it is, but that we would keep looking and keep seeing to find the truth of the gospel, that although we are weak and needy and powerless and are against impossible situations, God, you can do the miraculous. You are able to do what we cannot. And so I pray that you might help us to listen in, to think about not others around us, but ourselves in light of this text and to see Jesus as our great Redeemer, our great Savior, our King, and our Lord. And we ask all these things in his name, by the Spirit. Amen. The first, there's two two sections in James chapter 3, and the first one we just read can be summed up in this. The tongue is an uncontrollable fire. The tongue is an uncontrollable fire. James begins this passage by warning against the idea or the drive to become a teacher. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Why is he saying that? Well, he's about to go off into this section on speech and how our language has massive effects. And in the life of the church, the, the, the fact is the one who is standing to teach occupies a kind of opportunity and a kind of authority and a kind of influence that can be very good or very bad. And so if a teacher is teaching things that are false, it's not the same as a congregation member believing something false, right? Because the teacher is influencing this whole congregation and leading them away from the truth, leading them away from what is right and good. And so James is saying, you will be judged more strictly if you become a teacher because you have greater responsibility. And that greater responsibility is not something to be thought of as unimportant or just one other thing. It's like, no, you should be very careful 
in thinking about whether or not you should do this. Then he says, for we all stumble in many ways. So, So James is saying, look, we all fall short of the glory of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 3. We all sin. We all fall short. We all have faults. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. You might read that and think, well, there's no perfect man. So James is saying, well, you think that you do this, but nobody does this. So don't have an overinflated view of yourself. I don't think that's what what James is saying. I don't think James is giving us an impossible example. The word perfect here can also mean mature, can mean complete. And so I think what James is saying is, do you want to know what a mature believer looks like? Do you want to know what somebody who ought to teach looks like? He doesn't stumble in his words. He doesn't stumble with how he speaks. And I don't mean that in like a like a, an orator, like a speaker or a communicator. I mean, the things that he says are good. The things that he, he says are true and right. So if you want to be mature, and we see this throughout the New Testament, the responsibilities and the requirements for Christian leaders are no different than the responsibilities and requirements for all Christians. We don't have time to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul lays out the qualifications for a pastor, but those qualifications can all be found in different places throughout the New Testament to talk about normal believers, right? Not that there's any distinction. It's just that he's saying, this is someone who, should, who ought to be mature. And James, in the same way, is telling us, if you want to see a teacher qualified, worthy of the position, they ought not to stumble in their words. He gives us two examples to illustrate that small things control big things. So horses, one of the most powerful animals in that day and age. You put a bit in their mouth and turn their head one way or the other, and you can control that whole animal, right? This this small little thing has this massive kind of power. Or in the same sense, James says, what about a ship? You have this massive vehicle, this massive boat, And this one little bitty piece of wood or metal that turns this way or that controls the whole thing. And in the same way, James says, our tongues are true of us. Our tongues, in a way, direct us. They show and reveal things about us, which leads him to verse 6 or the end of verse five, beginning of verse six, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Another illustration, this one little problem in this great big forest can create a great big problem. And what James is trying to communicate to me and you is our tongues, although small, can lead to great big problems. Verse six brings this crushing blow to us. Our tongues are a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It stains our whole bodies. And this is similar to what Jesus says, right? It's not what you put in your body that defiles you. It's what comes out of your body that defiles you. So the things that you speak come out of your heart. The things that you say come from somewhere. It sets on fire, James says, the course of our lives. Why? Look at the very end of verse 6. It is set on fire by hell. 
Because of our sin, there is a spark in our mouths that sustains the wicked work of our tongues, and it bellows up from below. The source of that spark is hell. The, the, the thing that motivates and controls our speech apart from life in Christ, when we're just living our life in the flesh, he's going to say in a few verses later, it's demonic. And we have the thought, this is James continuing, that because we can control animals, right? Verse seven, every kind of beast and bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. He's not making this like scientific fiat. He's just making this general principle. We know how to control animals, but none of us know how to control our tongues. We know how to control big beasts in front of us, but not this small thing inside of us. It is an impossible task because it is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. And think about that idea of restless evil. When you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and you read stories of people being possessed by demons a way that you could describe them is restless evil, right? It's chaos. I think about the the possessed man in the Gadarenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee at the end of Mark chapter 4, beginning in Mark chapter 5. He's he's thrashing about. He's wallowing through the graveyard. The chains that they try to put on him, he breaks apart. He's cutting himself. It's just chaos and disorder. It is restless evil evil. Listen to Peter David's. It'll be on the screen. He says, the tongue then is restless. Restlessness is a characteristic of the demonic world and evil, while peace is a characteristic of God and his good kingdom. The tongue is always wanting to say something, often poison that produces death. The murders committed on behalf of a tyrant come about when he issues orders. And we experience something similar on the personal level when we speak evil and realize that it has brought death to us rather than life. I mean, isn't this picture bleak? I mean, James is not sugarcoating this. He's not trying to use some kind of, you know, roundabout way of saying this. He is being very clear. Don't we see what he's saying We all know that this is true. Our mouths are often the source of so much heartache and pain. And not just heartache and pain for us, but heartache and pain for people around us. And our internal words, the tongues of our minds, often land us in all the wrong places. And the context of what James is saying should make us even more wary. He's talking to all of us as believers. But remember, we have teachers in mind. Their words are powerful. They can sway and direct a congregation to all the wrong places as well. James continues by saying, it's from the same mouth that we praise God and then curse people who are made in his image. And what he's saying on the face of it is, you should realize pretty quickly that's absurd. That's not compatible. 
So he gives us these illustrations from nature. If you want olives, you don't go looking for them in the fig trees because you know that you won't find them there. If you want fresh water, you're not going to go to the ocean because fresh water and salt water don't come from the same place. And in the same way, blessing and cursing should not be compatible parts of our vernacular, of our vocabulary. These things ought not to be so, but it is. It is so. It's true in your life. It's true in my life. The fire that whips out from our tongues rages on. Those cutting words that you speak about another person, that rumor that you help spread, that gossip that you rile up among your peers, the angry outburst towards those you don't care for, or that angry outburst outburst towards those that you care deeply about. The fire of our tongues is uncontrollable. And maybe you know this already. I mean, maybe you've had the thought of, man, it is hard for me to watch my mouth. And maybe you even hate that. Maybe you even hate the fact that your tongue leads to so much fire and so much burning. But seeing the problem is not the same as the answer to the problem. The answer is not that we can just try to put the fire out. The answer is that we need a new fire. So turn to Acts chapter 2. If apart from Christ, being under the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the fire that motivates the engine of our tongue is from below, and we are powerless to destroy that, powerless to put that fire out, then what we need is something outside of us not from below, but from another place. Look at Acts chapter two, starting in verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's the disciples of Jesus. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak his own language. There is an answer to the fire that is uncontrollable in your heart that lashes out with your tongue. And it's a new fire. It's a fire not brought out from below, but that comes down from above. And we're going to see that in these next few verses in James chapter 3 as God's wisdom. God's wisdom. 
That picture that we should have of the Spirit coming down, filling us up, the tongue of fire resting on us, that now these new believers are speaking out, not in a way to curse and to harm and to frustrate, but a fire that purifies and displays glory and shines like a light in the darkness. Look at James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God's wisdom is miraculous. It can control the uncontrollable. It can put out the fire that we cannot quench. God is able to do things that are impossible for us. Jeremiah says, nothing is too hard for the Lord. So who are the wise and understanding among you, James says? How should we see wisdom? Is it knowledge? Is it intellectual firepower? Is it academic degrees? Is it followers on social media? Is it wealth? What about popularity or even cleverness? No, James says, wisdom is seen here in good conduct and in meekness humility. Remember, the immediate context of this passage is teachers in their speech. So what is vital for those who teach more than intellect or degrees or even job experience is a good life lived in humility. That will show the world that they are wise. And that is no less true of you. To embody wisdom is to live a life full of good works like we talked about last week in humility. But James says bitter jealousy and selfish ambition lead to boasting and not telling the truth. This is not the wisdom from above. It's the old spark from below. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic when we speak in these kinds of ways. John Calvin wrote, a slender portion of flesh, that is our tongues, contains in it the whole world of iniquity. You don't have to get past right here to get every kind of wickedness that you could want to find. So stop for a moment and think about your life and your speech over the last week. Is it marked by good conduct and humility or jealousy and selfish ambition? Is your conduct and your speech full of meekness or boasting? Is it orderly or chaotic? Because our tongues reveal our hearts. And if you're like me, even as a follower of Jesus, if you just stop for a moment and think about the last week, you are probably not too pleased with how you've done. You can probably think of things that you said to certain people or things that you didn't say to certain people or things that you did 
which should drive us not to despair. but to help. It should drive us not to say, oh, woe is me, I'm terrible, I'm awful, everything is bad, I can't do anything right. No, it should drive us to say, yes, I am needy. But I know that someone can help. I need, we need someone to help us. Divine wisdom, one commentator said, is set in bold contrast to the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of the flesh reflects the deception of Satan and his foolishness in the sight of God. If I think, if you think that I can figure this out on my own, that is believing the lie of the devil. And it is foolishness. We do not want to be deceived, as James has told us over and over again. And I don't want you to be deceived either. So let's look at this contrast. What we've seen before is the fire of a demonic, worldly tongue. But what does wisdom from above look like, particularly in our speech? He gives us some things to see. First, it's pure. It's holy speech. It's morally upright. It's not vulgar. It's not mean. It's pure. It's peaceable. You're easy to get along with. It doesn't cause strife. It's gentle. It's not harsh. It's caring and loving and encouraging. It's open to reason. It's teachable. It's not overly dogmatic about the wrong things. It's full of mercy and good fruits. I think... We all have in mind, when it says it's fruitful, we think about the fruit of the Spirit. It's full of mercy. It, it believes the best about the people in front of us. It takes them at their word. And if their word is unkind, we don't respond in kind. We respond in mercy. It's impartial. It doesn't show favoritism or treat one kind of person better or worse than another. It's sincere. It means what it says and says what it means. It doesn't flatter and it doesn't gossip. This is how Jesus spoke. This is his native tongue. This is his language. And when we become believers, we take on his language as our own. We now have as new creatures in Christ a new native tongue, native language. So here's where we lay on the plane. You cannot speak the language of Jesus if you've never heard it. And I don't mean you've been in a context where people who are Christians talk like Christians. I'm saying you've never heard it because you've never heard the gospel. So the answer to controlling our tongues can't begin by gritting our teeth and working hard in our own strength. It has to be to rest in Jesus who makes us new and gives us new hearts that say new words. And then we learn the language. We move from milk to meat. And this is so like, apparent in my life because I have a little boy who's learning a language and 
he's not learning from a textbook. How is he learning the language best? Immersion. He has surrounded himself, well, we have chosen to surround him with people who speak a language. And he picks it up. He hears what people say. Even when you don't want him to hear you say what you're saying. He often will repeat things that I did not intend for him to repeat. But he's picking it up because he's immersed himself in this kind of language. And as believers, this is how we learn best. So we talk to others around us who believe the same things and practice our speech together. We learn from those who are more fluent than us, who can tell us how the language works by showing it off. But we also study the grammar and syntax of the language we're learning. That would be the Bible. And as we do all of this, practice and learn and grow in fluency in the language of Jesus, in the wisdom from above, we will fulfill and experience the proverb that James gives us here at the end. The wisdom from above leads to this, verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It will lead to real righteousness in your life. And so my hope and prayer in the time that we have left together is that you would take an honest look at how you talk. An honest look at how you speak. An honest look at what drives you to say the things that you say. Because ultimately, our speech is the fruit. And if we want to address the fruit that we produce, we ultimately have to dig down deep into the soil of our hearts and find the root of the problem. And the root of the problem fundamentally is that we believe the lie rather than the truth. We think we need to be a certain way, to speak a certain way, to treat people a certain way, to get the certain things that we want. Or we don't get the things that we want, and that leads us to say in anger or frustration or in heartache things that we ought not to say. But if we can drill down to the root and realize that the promises of God are good, trustworthy, lead us to all the contentment that we long for, well then, by God's grace and by his spirit, he might produce new fruit in us, new words that come out of us, new speech for us.